This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And this morning, we're talking about elder law. Uh, We're talking about it from all angles. Uh, What is elder abuse? Planning for incapacity? uh, Consumer uh, scams and frauds? So this morning, uh, we've got a great uh, guest. It's... uh, Professor uh, Rebecca Morgan from the Center for Excellence in Elder Care. That's at Stetson uh, College of Univer- uh, Stetson College of Law. But first, welcome Professor Gershon up in Oxford. How are you today? Doing great, Liz, and it, it really is such an honor to have uh, Professor Morgan on today. She is the past president of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, the past president of the Board of Directors of the National Senior Citizens Law Center. I mean, truly, a, a, a you know, has a great reputation throughout our country, uh, established the uh, the Elder Law Clinic originally at Stetson and has been doing this, this practice for her entire career. So it's very fortunate uh, for us to have her on the show today. Professor Morgan, welcome. Why, thank you so very, very much, and it's a real thrill for me to be able to participate. I've been on your show once before and had so much fun, and I think the world of Dean Gershon, he's one of my dear friends, and anytime I get to work with him, it's fabulous, and he and I can just talk about how everybody's getting older, including us. That's right, and uh, Professor Morgan, we're going to make you an honorary Mississippian. I know you're calling from Gulfport, Florida, but we're going to pretend you're calling from Gulfport, Mississippi. (laughs) Well, okay. That'll be just fine with me. I'll work on my (laughs) y'all. So uh, tell us about uh, the the Center for Excellence in Elder Care. Uh, What all do you do there? Um, Well, at Stetson Law, we have, in in the Elder Law Program, we pretty much have three different approaches that we take. One is to educate students about the issues facing America's elders and the legal issues that they all need to know about. And we focus on both our JD students as well as attorneys who are in our graduate degree program. Um, We also focus on educating lawyers, so we do conferences periodically throughout the year to let them know about the latest and greatest in issues of law. In particular, one of our focus, main focus has been actually on special needs planning. So when you have a person who has a disability, the kinds of legal issues you need to think about. And then we like to do education for the public as well, like 
this, for example, but we also do some other programs where we'll go out into the community or have something on campus for people to come in and learn about issues. And one of the things that we do is we like to do consumer protection programs to educate people about how to be smart consumers and to protect themselves from scams and frauds and identity theft and all those different kinds of things. Well, you are uh, calling us from Florida. Is there much variation on uh, protections uh, for our older citizens by state? Is a lot of it uh, federal? Well, you know, Liz, that's a really important point for people. And the issues that we see um, are, the, are the same regardless of what state you live in. We see the same kinds of legal problems wherever you live. The solutions, depending on the type of problem, may be governed by federal law, such as Medicare or Social Security. Um, but there also may be state-specific laws. So if you're dealing with a guardianship, Richard, is it guardianship or conservatorship? in Mississippi. Guardianship. Thank you. Guardianship or elder abuse, there's going to be state statutes in Mississippi that would address those particular issues. But although the laws may differ, Liz, I have to tell you, because I've talked to a lot of people from all over the U.S., the problems... We see the same kind of problems regardless of where you live. Well, and our show doesn't uh, purport to give specific legal advice for situations, but we do want to educate our listeners so that they are aware and they can seek specific legal counsel for their particular issues. That's great. Right. All right. So let's first, uh, sadly, uh, elder yes. abuse. You hear about that. Uh, okay. First, elder. What, 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 who is an elder? Well, you know, Liz, that's a pretty funny question because the older you get, the further away you want to say that number would be. Um, and the statutes tend to use 60 or 65 as a framework for um, aging. So, for example, with Medicare, it's 65. With Social Security, it's increasing gradually. If you're a baby boomer, it's likely 66 or a little bit more. And then the age will top out at 67 eventually for people with Social Security. So those are the kinds of numbers that we think about. With elder abuse, the statute may not use a specific age. If it does, it's probably going to use 60 or 65. But what it may use is more about the person's abilities. For example, in Florida, we describe a person as a vulnerable adult. And if the person is a vulnerable adult in need of protection, that person would fall under the statute. The, the thing to remember about elder abuse is that tends to be a shorthand term for the different types of abuse. And so elder abuse involves physical abuse. It can involve psychological abuse, you know, name calling. It can involve sexual assault, any non-consensual sexual contact with a person who meets the definition of the statute. Neglect when you have a caregiver who has the duty to caregive for the individual and fails in that duty or financial exploitation, which is the taking of the money or property of the victim for your own benefit. And when we think about um, the different types of elder abuse, the important thing for listeners to remember is that anyone can be a victim 
and anyone can be a perpetrator. And unfortunately, most often the data shows us that perpetrators are family members. That, and I, I understand that is that is so hard to hear. Uh, and I guess that's why it's important. At, at our house, uh, we, we jokingly say, you know, we, we check on our old people. Uh, and th- it's good to have people who have in acquaintances or individuals, if one is an, uh, considered an elder, have uh, acquaintances, church family, or neighbors who can give a good check on them. And, and that's a good point. And Becky, is it is it safe to say that one of the things that people can do to protect themselves is not wait until they're in those vulnerable positions to do planning, to, to think about who they will you know, trust with their uh, not only health care, but also their financial uh, needs when, when they can't uh, deal with them themselves? The sooner people start planning, the better off they're going to be and the better protected they're going to be? Oh, you know, that's that's really important, Richard. We we never, you know, we just don't stop and think unless some there's some major event in our lives about the fact that we're getting older because aging just happens to us. In fact, for those listeners who stay with us for the entire time, you're going to be 50 minutes older by the time we're done talking today. It just happens to us. And so we need to think proactively and we need to be smart. And you're absolutely right about this. And there are different things that we can do in order to put our plans in place. And the more important thing to do is to plan. Some people will not want to do it because they think that, well, my family will know what I want or um, my family will take care of things. But that's not fair to the family either. And so a person would want to go and talk to an elder law attorney. And Liz, I have to say, I'm going to say elder law attorney because that's what I do. Um, But elder law attorneys are skilled in knowing what likely will happen legally to people as they age and what things they can put in place. And so, for example, a person might want to create a durable power of attorney. And that durable power of attorney is a document where you appoint somebody in that document to be your agent to make decisions for you about your finances. Now, thinking back about the fact that so many instances of elder abuse involve a family member, it's really important, Richard, in selecting the right agent. And so sometimes people just think that their kids are going to be the best ones, but that is not always true. Uh, You want to take somebody who you know is going to be trustworthy and who is not going to use the power inappropriately. I think the most important decision you make when you're deciding to do a power of attorney is who you pick as your agent. Well, and we will get to that and other information about our topic, elder law, when we come back from our break. So, listeners, if you have uh, any questions, uh, we're going to find out what are some of the signs, because I certainly don't want my mama being uh, abused, and I don't want to be abusing her. So we'll, we'll learn what some of the signs are. We'll also talk about some uh, scams and frauds. Uh, we'll also get some more information about planning. You're listening to In Legal Terms. Our phone number is one 877 
672-7464. Send us an email also. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, we uh, stated before, if you listen to this whole show, you'll be 50 minutes older. But if you only listen to a little bit of it, you might just be 15 minutes older. So if you miss any of our show, we want you to listen to the whole program. You can listen to it at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as is all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Professor Rebecca Morgan. She's talking about elder law. So if you have a question, our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. I was interested to know, Professor Morgan, that uh, Stetson was Florida's first law school. Yes, yes, we um, we are. We're, we're Florida's first law school. We're the oldest law school in the state of Florida. Well, that that is fantastic to know. So let's get back to uh, the beginning. We were talking about elder abuse. What are some examples of what elder abuse might be? Um, the the. Elder abuse, in terms of the physical abuse, uh, as the name implies, physical abuse, you know, hurting the person, hurting the elder. Um, Psychological abuse is calling the elder names, um, demeaning them in some way, shape, or form. Neglect is when you have a duty to take care of the elder and you fail in that duty. Uh, For example, say that I... um, I'm my mom's caregiver, and I just decide to go off for the weekend somewhere, and I don't take, I don't leave her food, I don't have anybody coming in to check on her, you know, I don't get her the medical treatment. Uh, Financial exploitation, that's the fastest growing uh, type of elder abuse in the U.S., and that involves, as the name implies, taking the elder's money or property for yourself. So if I'm, um, if I have access to my mom's funds and I have a gambling debt hypothetically and I use my mom's funds to pay my gambling debt or I just start stealing her property for whatever reason. Financial exploitation is the one where it can really leave the person destitute and it's oftentimes very hard to recover the money once the the exploitation is discovered and it, it is a real tough problem for us to discover any type of elder abuse simply because many times the elders living at home uh, doesn't have a lot of contact with the outside world 
there may be a reluctance to report, an inability to report. And so people who know about the possibility that elder abuse is going on should call the, the hotline to report elder abuse in an attempt to get an elder the necessary help. Oh, all right. And we'll have more information about that hotline on our website, mpbonline.org, slash in legal terms, where folks will be able to uh, uh, get more information about this show uh, later on today. So uh, how are some ways, uh, you mentioned the hotline, how are some other ways to get help if you suspect elder abuse? The, the important thing when you suspect elder abuse is to report it. And each state has an adult protective services department, and they are located, there's a statewide one, but then they're also located within your counties. And you can call them to report, or you can call the sheriff, any law enforcement agency, or you can call the, you know, the EMTs, you call 911, and they'll get some help out there to uh investigate and make sure that the person is now safe and then law enforcement investigates and files a report with the assistant state attorney and the state attorney decides whether or not to prosecute the individual adult protective services is designed to get in there and get that elder into a safe place and make sure that the elders needs are being met and just uh, for people who are in mississippi that's through our department of human services here and that phone number, which I, I, Liz, I'll send it to you so we can post it on the website as well, is 1-800-227-7308. I'm writing it down. Excellent. Uh, Department of Human Services in Mississippi for, uh, if you suspect elder abuse, is 1-800-227-7308. I'm glad we'll have that available for our listeners. So let's That's get great. Let's get back to uh, planning for incapacity. We've had uh, estate lawyers on before, and they've talked about how truly hard, sad, uh, frustrating, disappointing uh, when you have a family member who is suspected maybe of, of beginning dementia and how all of that needs to start before any of that starts. Right. It's really important for people to, to plan ahead. And the sooner you plan, the better. Once you plan, though, it's not uh, a done deal. You need to periodically review your documents to make sure they still reflect your wishes. If you, if you go to an elder law attorney and you say, I want to make sure I'm, I'm planning for the future, an elder law attorney tends to focus on the person's last third of life. You know, estate planners are going to do your documents for you to make sure after death everything is taken care of. But elder law attorneys really focus on the elder's last, I don't want to say end of life, but that last third of life, because they want to make sure that they have all the documents that they're going to need to have a quality of life. And so that typically involves a health care directive to name somebody who can make your health care decisions for you if you can't. And there's a variety of different kinds of things that you might want to have done or not done. And so getting somebody in place 
to do that. The agent, as I said, having the durable power of attorney, you want to have it durable because that implies that if you lose your capacity to make your financial decisions, your agent has the ability to make those decisions That's because it's durable. Typically, under a power of attorney, and Richard, stop me if I'm getting too far down in the weeds. The person who you name as your agent can only do the kinds of things you could do. And if you lose capacity, you can't do business anymore. Neither could your agent. So the durable power of attorney is specifically designed in the law to solve that problem in that if you lose capacity, that power of attorney is still good. So people always want to make sure that their power of attorney is a durable power of attorney. And the, the lawyer may recommend that you have a pre-need guardian, so in the event you lose capacity and the court determines that you need a guardian appointed for you, that you have put down in writing who you might want, and the court will look at that and take that into consideration and give it great weight. The, um, the attorney may recommend to you that you have uh, a revocable trust as part of this um, and then a will. And so depending on your particular circumstances, there'll be several documents that the attorney is going to talk to you about because we know that as we age, we may not be able to do the same things that we used to do when we were younger. I was at the orthopod the other day with my knee, and he goes, I can't give you a 30-year-old knee anymore. And I'm like, well, darn it, why not? Because as we age, things are different. But it's also important for the listener to know that not everybody ages in the same way and not all Oops, we had a little bit of trouble with uh, Professor Morgan's uh, phone. Let's see if uh, it's working now. Professor Morgan, are you there? Well, while she's cut out, I can I can uh, finish off a little bit of what she was saying. I mean, I think you know one one of the things that uh, that you know, Becky is talking about is you have to have capacity in order to effectuate these documents that are so important, the, the durable power of attorney to sign it, to, to have a, a, a revocable trust that um, is valid, and also to, uh, you know, to have uh, a, a will. So the sooner we do those things, the better. And I think people put those off, and then it can be too late. And she mentioned a guardianship. And if a court appoints a guardian and you haven't uh, given instructions about who that person can be, that's when those situations of abuse can happen because the wrong person could be appointed and they are given access to accounts um, and you know that are supposed to be used for the benefit of the, the person who's incapacitated. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, that could be, uh, you know, an op- opportunity for abuse anyway. So we want to we want to do those plans while we're young. Uh, she mentioned uh, a health care directive, an advanced health care directive. I make my students in my wills and estates class do one of those because that's something somebody should uh, do when they're young. And and so a lot of this, I think people put them up, put off planning, and that's when we have problems. That's right. We we had our uh, 
daughter who went and studied abroad, you know, made sure that she had all sorts of uh, durable power of attorneys and all sorts of information because it's, you know, as soon as you leave the nest, uh, uh, you're on your own and there are legal protections, but that also uh, uh, means if you're an adult and you need to be able to make your own decisions. Well, Professor Morgan, we're glad we got you back. Sorry about that. I was just speechifying away, and then I thought, wow, they're not saying anything. <laughs> well, we're going to um, take our... You know, one thing I want to add to what Rick just said, uh-huh. which is really important, is that once you make the documents, though, you still need to periodically look at them and make sure they're the way you want, because things change over time. And I, I would guess, Richard, that what your students want now, in 10 years, their, their minds may change a little bit. Exactly. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are speaking today with uh, Professor Becky Morgan. She's at Stetson University and is a specialist in elder care. Uh, Been the previous president of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys and past president of the board of directors for the National Senior Citizens Law Center. So if you have a question about uh, laws specifically pertaining to our elderly citizens, give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And today we're joined by our guest... Professor Rebecca Morgan. She's a professor at Stetson School of Law in Florida and, in fact, has served on the Florida Attorney General's Task Force on Elder Abuse and the Florida Legislative Legislature Guardianship Study Commission. Uh, professor Gershon, we've talked uh, here in Mississippi on a number of past shows how important it is for some of all our lawyers to be on these commissions to help provide facts so our legislators can make uh, informed good decisions. Absolutely. And I know a lot of our faculty has been involved uh, in, in working with the legislature on things like um, uh, rules for criminal procedure, things like that. So it really is important. Uh, and, and Becky has been doing this her whole career. I mean, she is uh, uh, you know, considered one of the, the leading uh, members of the Florida Bar and uh, always uh, a respected voice. And so, again, we're lucky that she's spending this hour with us today. Well, we're glad she's here. And we have a call uh, from Calhoun County. Our friend Dudley is on the line. Dudley, we appreciate you calling in today. Go ahead. Oh, and I would like to tell you how much I appreciate your subject for today, being a senior, senior citizen myself. And I, I would like to thank our attorney general as well as our uh, 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 
Well, the Attorney General and the Public Service Commissioner, especially up in the Northern District, they are so good to get out things about warning senior citizens. And my real concern, though, is health care for senior citizens and how to prepare for, you know, that that age as the insurance goes up. Uh, am I making sense? <laughs> you're making lots of sense, Dudley. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's, you know, health care is an important part of of having a, a good quality of life when you're older. And so we rely upon Medicare uh, once we reach 65 to provide our health care coverages. But we know that it's becoming more expensive. And so it's really important to be informed about what options are best for you when you are making a decision regarding whether to be in what's known as original Medicare, which is parts A and B or whether you want to sign up for a managed care plan. And your state will have a program through your local area agency on aging where volunteers can answer questions and help you figure out which plan is right for you. And then, of course, we now have the drug benefit under Part D, and so you want to make sure that you've picked a good plan that covers the drugs that you take. And you also want to think about whether you need a supplement mental insurance policy and so you start thinking about all these choices that you have to make and it's just it's not easy to be older you have to be educated when you're older and I'm really glad to hear that your state does a good job about getting the information out to everybody in your state but I would suggest that you take a look or call your area agency on aging and see what information that they have for you regarding the ways that you might um, make sure that you've got the right Medicare coverage for yourself and what programs exist in the state regarding health insurance costs. And of course, don't be shy about telling your elected officials regarding your concerns on the cost of health care, because that's a hot topic these days. Dudley, thanks so much for calling in today. Um, one of the things we've been talking about uh, planning as you're older, and it you know now it seems like the oldest living person is always much older now. Uh, tell us what are health care surrogates? The health care surrogate is the is the some states will call them the health care agent. And when you decide that you want to nominate somebody or name somebody to make your health care decisions for you, if you cannot make it, then you sign an advanced directive. It's a written document that says, in the event I can't make my health care decisions, then I want Richard Gershon to be my agent, and he's empowered to make my health care decisions. Florida, we call them health care surrogate. Other states, they're going to call them health care agent. But that's what, the, what it is. And it's really important for a person, if you have particular wishes regarding your health care, that you put your wishes in writing because it's the best chance you have of making your wishes known. Unfortunately, only about 25 or 30 percent of folks in the U.S. have written it down. Most folks in the U.S. do not have the health care directive, 
And Liz, it can be for various reasons. There's some folks who will say that their families know what they want, and that's probably true. Others may think that they're tempting fate, um, that if they do this, something bad will happen to them. When I, every year, and I'll bet, Richard, you do this as well, every year I ask my students how many of them have a health care directive, and maybe, maybe 5% of them do. Very few of them do, because they're young people and they don't think anything's going to happen. But... Families can, of course, make these decisions for you, and they are likely to know what you want if you have told them. But also think about the fact that when when you have a, a relative who has had a health care incident and everybody's stressed out, um, it's a lot better for everybody involved if you've put it in writing and picked somebody who is going to be basically the quarterback here for you. And it just makes it smoother and easier for everybody involved. And, you know, one, one person that has to be included in, in that directive is the, the doctor. And most doctors now offices will ask you if you have a directive. Um, I remember I had a student one time who was a doctor in my class. He was in my, my Wills class. And I was talking about the importance of advanced health care directives. And he said, as a doctor, I would never accept those. And it was also including, you know, the fact that in an advanced health care directive, you can talk about end of life uh, issues, you know, choices not to prolong life, end of life decisions, those kinds of things. He said, I would never honor one of those. And I, so I, I said to the rest of the class, then don't use him as a doctor. You know, because if that's something your client wants, then, then, you know, they should be able to go to a doctor and trust that that doctor will follow through on their wishes. All yes. right. So yes. now that's we- a really important point. And so I think, you know, what I what I was saying to Dudley earlier is is you have to be educated and you also have to be your own advocate for these things. And so you want to ask your doctor. Um, the doctor should ask you if you have one of these directives. And if you do, they're going to want you to give them a copy so they can put it in the file. But you also need to remember that if you go into a nursing home or you go into a hospital, they're going to ask you as well if you have one of these and um, they're going to make note of it. And I think that naming a healthcare agent is really, really important. Having gone through it, like so many other people with, with a family member, having somebody who's in charge and can make the decisions and and take care of all the paperwork and deal with the docs um, it's just a real help for the family in times when there's a, a, a medical issue going on all right and we have a call uh, waiting now and if you have a call for our show our number is one eight seven seven. MPB ring that works out to be 18776727464. Kay, we're glad you're holding on from Madison. Go ahead. Hi. Um I was calling to um, kind of actually comment. I don't have a question. Um I, one of the things I think that few people kind of think about and realize when it comes to elder care um and the issues that come with toward the end of life are that most of the time, children are the ones that bear the the responsibility, and a lot of parents, and I'm speaking from personal experience, have a hard time stepping out of the role of parent, and they don't share information with their children. Um, I had a really, like a really horrible four-year experience of taking care of my elderly father, and a lot of the information that I needed to have 
he didn't divulge before he got sick because he was a grown man and, you know, could take care of himself. He became ill suddenly, and he had taken care of a lot of his issues monetarily. He was stable. Insurance-wise, he was stable, but um, sometimes older people are involved in relationships with other people. So we had a lot of issues relationship-wise with who was in charge of money and things like that. He had an instance where someone that he had trusted had access to his bank account and, and actually wiped him out. And although I was a signer on his account, I had no idea there was another one. So there are a lot of issues that we had to deal with that I didn't know about because I wasn't privy to any personal information. But I think that sometimes if you get you know, to a certain age, you should really be open and honest with an adult child who's capable of having adult conversations. Um, it even got to the point where when he passed, I didn't know that the beneficiary to his um, burial was another person. And I wasn't privy to the money. So there are a lot of things that parents think they take care of if they pay for everything, but little things make a big difference when it comes to another person making decisions for your life. Thank you, Kay. That, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a great point, Liz. And if, if I could, um, you know, we got to remember, too, that as we get older, we, you know, we've been adults for a long, long time and, and we feel like we're getting um, along well. And especially if you've been a really private person, you don't like people to know a lot of things. And, you know, no matter how old you get or how accomplished you are, you're still the kid to your parents. And so that's that's a tough conversation to have with your parent about, you know, I need to know these things so that I can help you because so many times people don't want to share that information and it, it makes it harder for the agent or the family who's trying to do the right thing and take care of the person as they are aging. And so having a conversation with your family is really, really important, but it also is a bit of a minefield because some um, older people are not really receptive to it and so you want to think hard about having a chat with your parents about why you need to know this information and why they need to plan and I'm going to send you Liz a website to something called the conversation project which you could put up on um, uh, on the on the the I'm sorry, the program's website. It's about how to have conversations with your family regarding end-of-life care. And it has actually even a starter kit on how you can sit down and talk to your mom and dad about what their wishes are. Oh, and we will definitely get that on our website, mpbonline.org, slash in legal terms. I think I've heard some of this referred to as the powdered bottom syndrome, that if if, uh, if you have powdered the bottom of someone, you're, you always think of them as a little baby and as a child and are less likely to treat them as, a, as an equal adult to, to divulge in, uh, that kind of information to them. Well, I think yeah. that's easy. And, and, go ahead, and I'm sorry, Richard, go ahead. No, I was, gonna, no, I was just going to say I, I totally agree with Liz that, you know, I have that conversation with my children now that they're older. They don't always want to hear it, but I want them to, you know, to know, you know, where things are, what their role is, you know, and uh, and in the event 
that that happened, so it's not a surprise to them. And uh, so, please go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, and and it is. It's not an easy conversation to have. And if the parent were willing to start the conversation with the kids, I think it's easier than the parent who is reluctant to to, to face the fact that he or she may need some help down the road, and um, and then have the kids try to initiate the conversation. But one other thing I'd like us to talk about, Richard, is the fact that the, the prior caller mentioned you know, family, and I think we have to recognize that family dynamics are going to play a role here as well. And and so thinking about your your family, if you have siblings, how well you get along with your siblings, your parents' relationship with you and your siblings makes a, um, a huge difference because if we do need caregivers, a significant percentage of the people providing care for us when we are older are going to be our adult children. And we have to recognize that family dynamics can play a role in the parents' care. And I I always like to to tell people that your siblings, you and your siblings, you're maybe adults, but you're still siblings, and however you got along as kids is probably still how you're getting along as adults. And so there's always kind of that sibling rivalry going on, and for those listeners who are old enough to remember the Smothers Brothers with Mom Always Liked You Best, family favoritism plays a role here, and we have to recognize that family dynamics, for good or bad, can play a role in in the caregiving and how well the plans are implemented. When you're thinking about uh, picking your agent and you've got two kids, you don't necessarily want to name both of your kids as your co-agents just because you're worried about, you know, playing favorites, because one of the kids may not be really suited to do this. Um, Say, for example, you have a child who lives nearby and who is very serious and very reliable. And then you have another child who travels all the time and only checks in once every six months or so. If you wanted to name them as co-agents, there's going to be some issues if you think that they need to make decisions together. Well, and because Professor the one Morgan who will all the time. It's going to be hard to reach. We'll or get if to... you have two kids and they fight constantly, then they're, it's going to be difficult for them to ever reach agreement. And so sometimes you have to think about who's going to be best, and the lawyer can help you do that, because it's not like you're trying to hurt somebody's feelings. You're just trying to put plans in place. Does that make sense, Liz? It does. And, Professor Morgan, we'll get to more of the family dynamics after we take our last break of the show. Charlotte in Pontotoc, Michael in Perry, hang on. I appreciate your calling to uh, uh, about our show. We'll get to you right when we come back from the break. And if you have a question or a comment about Elder Law. That's our topic today with our guest, Professor Rebecca Morgan from Stetson College of Law and Professor Richard Gershon at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Uh, You can give us a call, too. Our number is 1-877-672-7464. We'll be right back after this real quick break. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, remember, if you miss any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at our website, mpbonline.org slash terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as is all our local shows. You can also download it as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Professor Rebecca Morgan from Stetson School of Law. And our website will just be bursting with information, practical information like our Mississippi's area on aging services to see if you find out if uh, the the elder in your life is uh, eligible for adult daycare or um, transportation services or uh, lots of outreach uh, opportunities. Uh, But we'll also have national things like um, a a way to have a conversation with your your family to to get uh, everyone on the same page. We'll also have a link to our Mississippi health care directive. Uh, Charlotte, I appreciate you holding on so long. Uh, Charlotte from Pontotoc, go ahead with your question or comment. Thank you so much for your, your great program. Um, and I have several things I'll try not to uh, monopolize the time. Uh, but uh, for the uh, attorney there, um, I would just like to make a comment. I, I would hope that the laws could be changed when our mother had had a stroke after our father had passed away. And none of us lived in the state. And so we were trying to uh, find help for her. But it, it seems that she had to be divested of everything she had to qualify for Medicaid. Uh, and so uh, we just footed the bill for to keep her in the home and and uh, pay for someone to come in, but everybody's not able to do that. So I would love to see the laws change such that an elderly person, an indigent person, could be able to keep something of his or her own and still remain, you know, in the home care. Um, She was disabled from her stroke. Uh, The second thing is, I want to know, um, recently we had our younger sister to pass away, and she... um, had most cancer and she she was a businesswoman so she had all these you know email accounts and that and passwords and and that and so we didn't have access and we just had to try to she was single no children and so we just had to try to piece things together to try to you know settle uh she died in testing so uh, to to try to take care of her affairs afterwards. So my question is, for passwords, uh, for instance, I have passwords in various accounts. How can I put those aside so that when I pass away, uh, you know, my survivors will know how to get access? Should I get a safe deposit box and I'll put them in there? The other thing for all of those valuable documents like the will and all of those, the directors and all of those. I have a home safe, but then 
where do I leave the combination so that when I'm gone, they will know how to get in that safe? Charlotte, I'm going to let uh, Professor uh, Morgan take this, but I also want to remind all our listeners on our previous show, Money Talks, we just talked about having an emergency financial first aid kit. FEMA has a uh, packet that you can either download or call to receive. You can also click the link on the Money Talks website, and it has a place for everyone to write down all their information, passwords, uh, policies, and they suggest you uh, give it uh, possibly in a sealed envelope or uh, give it to a trusted individual in case there is an emergency. But, uh, Professor Morgan, what do you suggest? You know, Charlotte, first of all, condolences, but you, you, your experience raises a good point for people in, the, in listening here. We have so much of our information these days that are kept electronically, and for various reasons, um, especially including identity theft and hacking, you know, we're all being told now that we should keep our passwords written down, but you have to keep things in a safe place. Now, obviously, a safe deposit box or a safe at home is a safe place. A health care agent, the directive, you don't want to put that in your safe deposit box or put that in um, a safe because the person who is your agent needs to have access to that document. So typically, elder law attorneys will tell you with that that just that one bit document, the health care directive that you make sure that people who are going to be involved in your care in the event of emergency have a copy. So that's why when we mentioned earlier your doctor, the hospital, whoever is going to be your agent, Richard is my agent, he's going to have a copy of it. But for your passwords and things like that, um, where you keep your, your information needs to be secure so not everybody can just come in and get your passwords, but they also need to be somewhere useful to you. And so this digital, this um, financial assets emergency first aid kit sounds like a good idea. I always tell people um, they want to have something where it's logical to look for it. Um, it may just be, here's this letter that says, um, you know, my lawyer has all the passwords or the passwords are in the safe and, you know, my lawyer has this or somebody has this. Um, what's logical to you, but also secure? Richard in Mississippi, um, is there any particular process for keeping that kind of information? Do you typically in Mississippi, you have your lawyer keep custody of these kinds of documents and things? Well, I don't think it's so much necessarily the lawyer just you're right, though. It's got to be somebody and somebody you trust. Uh, and so uh, we have our, uh, my sister-in-law is going to be the one that will have that information uh, if we pass away. All right. Gosh, uh, Norman and Holly Springs, I'm sorry we didn't get to your call. Thank you, Rebecca Mo- Professor Rebecca Morgan, for coming on to our show. That's going to wrap us up for today in In Legal Terms. Our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. Our board engineer in Jackson has been Jay White in Oxford. We couldn't do without Tracy Daniel. And so for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Don't forget to check out our website for lots of good information. Up next is Tuesday's Southern Remedy Show, Relatively Speaking. Join us next week at 10 for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 